I'm pretty much done with doctors. You go to these guys, they give you advice, and then they do exactly what they tell you not to do. You go to the dentist, don't stick sharp objects in your mouth. And the first thing they do is take out a really sharp piece of steel and shove it in between your teeth. I went to the eye doctor, because my eyes are starting to get a little fuzzy. They put so many drops in my eyes that when I was done, I couldn't see anything. I'm not going to a head doctor. They gave me a prescription for these glasses. And they were the glasses from Hades. I put them on and the whole room started spinning. There were these uh, progressive lenses. Lord have mercy. Well, I'm glad they work for you. They work for my wife too. I put them on and the whole, the whole earth became wavy and distorted. And so yesterday I got some bifocals and I put them on, but I have to strain to see clearly, which gave me a headache and made me dizzy. And I'm still dizzy. I'm not, I'm not right. So if I fall off the chair, somebody picked me up and put me back on. The title of this message is The Righteousness of God's Torah. Last week's devilish distractions focused on festivals of the flesh provide a clear contrast to the holiness of God that I was speaking about previously. This week I should like to return to those qualities of God that flow from the fountainhead of his holiness. I'll give a short recap. God's holiness is tam. It's perfect. It's full. He is utterly separate from anything in this creation. David describes his quest for to find the knowledge of God. He wants to search and find out a deeper knowledge of the one he worships. And he describes this search in Psalm 139, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonder-filled for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. It's, David can't get his mind around it. All those who search to know the mind of God, to behold his face, to be absorbed by the light of his presence, however you wish to phrase it, share the same conclusion. It's just too much. To behold his glory even from afar leaves one simply awestruck. Those few who have been taken up in the spirit to see the heavenly places return with similes and metaphors and analogies and juxtapositions and illustrations to try and describe what they saw. I love to read these descriptions. For alas, my righteousness or more accurately 
the lack thereof, has formed a sort of spiritual cataract that clouds my vision. I see through a glass dimly, much like my glasses. The Sinai event represents the most demonstrative appearance of God to man subsequent to the Garden of Eden. And I know that there are people who are already thinking, what about Yeshua? Yeshua was the antithesis of demonstrative. The word demonstrative has a very specific meaning, and that's why I used it. It is to demonstrate something. It is to reveal something with clarity. Yeshua tried to hide who he was for most of his, his ministry. He constantly performed miracles and then told those people, don't tell anybody. The prophecies of his coming where there was nothing about his physical appearance that would draw us to him. He was obscured. He was the presence of God obscured or hidden in this world. The presence of God at Sinai was overt. It was demonstrative. We could point to his location. We could, we could behold the light of his presence that was shrouded by the cloud. Moshe first heard the call of the summit when he saw the bush burning and that bush was not consumed by the fire. He would return to Sinai with all of Israel, not too long a period of time, and he would be called to ascend once again. However, this time he was not alone. At the bush, he went up alone. When he was called a second time, there were others that were with him. At Sinai, an entire nation heard God speak the 10 words. It's actually the word there is devarim. It's not commandments, it's the 10 words. A select few were permitted to draw closer, to leave the valley floor and to ascend a portion of the way up that mountain. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 18, we are provided with a, a portal through which we can gaze into eternity, outside of this world. I will bre briefly exegete this, this passage. In 24, verse 9, Then Moshe went up with Aharon and Nadav and Avihu and 70 princes of Israel. So from this description, 74 Israelites, with the possible addition of one more, ascend this mountain. Verse 10, Yisrael, And they saw the God of Israel. Now, theologians make a big deal of this. They, they mitigate the word saw, but the word of God says, and they saw the God of Israel. We are not given a description of God, for as stated earlier, man does not have the words. There, there are no words to describe the God of Israel that they saw. 
However, there is an attempt to describe what surrounds him, the environment that existed around him. And under his feet there appeared a floor of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. That is one translation. But it is very difficult to translate Hebrew into English or Greek. And the reason is, Hebrew is a very figurative language. It has approximately a third of the words of English or Greek. And so the context, the, uh, the nature of the conversation, all has something to do, a part to play, in how those words are to be understood. The Hebrew here is very difficult to translate. It says, The word kimase, ki is a, a prefix to the word mase, and it means like or as. It's a simile. Masa comes from asa, which means a work or a thing. Leave not is the Hebrew word that means white, or in some contexts, transparent. So basically, they're looking through something that they can see through that's transparent, like a, like a piece of glass or the atmosphere. And they're looking at something through this lens. Hasafir. In modern Hebrew, safir means sapphire. But actually, the word safir comes from the same root as the word sofer. Sofer means scribe, or scroll, or to write. The sefer Torah that we pulled out is the scroll of Torah. More mystical interpretations understand sofir not to be sapphire, but to mean the scroll of heavenly words that spread out beneath God's feet and supported his presence, specifically Torah. My people see the Torah scroll of parchment that we have, for instance, in the ark. They see it as a reflection of the heavenly Torah. Our Torah is written with black ink that is inscribed on white parchment. The heavenly Torah is revealed as black fire, which is inscribed upon white fire. That's how my people see. The words inscribed as black fire allow us to pass through. They are a gateway and gaze upon the brilliant white of God's fire that exists behind it. So basically we can see God through God's word, the descriptions that are given in God's word. The word Hashemayim is literally waters and is often translated heavens. The word Hashemayim can refer to the first heaven, the sky, where God separated the waters from the waters, the waters below, and the waters above, the sky is the first heaven. The second heaven is the cosmos, 
the universe, what we call outer space. It can also refer to the third heaven, which is the realm of angels. The prophets were taken up in the spirit to this heaven to receive their visions. Paul refers to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The word latahara is the word for pure, as in lev tahor, a pure heart, a clean heart. Latahor implies clarity, something that is clear without blemish or imperfection. So either they looked through a clear blue sephiric barrier beneath and saw God above, or they looked through a clear scroll of God's words and beheld the divine presence. Verse 11, yet he, God, did not reach out with his hand against the princes of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. So they ascended a part of the way up the mountain, they beheld God, and they break out the picnic basket, and they start to eat. All others were prohibited from even approaching Mount Sinai, and anyone who touched it would certainly die, according to what God said. But he allowed these few to ascend, to leave the crowd, come a portion of the way up the mountain, and to behold the living God. And under this splendid canopy, or chuppah, they ate and they drank. The elders of Israel were the first to attend the marriage supper of the Lord. This describes what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lord. The body of believers await that celebration at a future date. There will be another supper. In verse 12, now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay there and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for Israel's instructions, the Torah and the mitzvot, what is tra translated as, as uh, the law and commandments. Perhaps even the same Torah upon which his feet rested. The word Torah comes from the word yara. Yara means to flow like water or to rain, droplets of rain. Paul draws upon this interpretation in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. He exhorts husbands to love their wives, even as Messiah loved the body of believers, that he might, quote, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. So he, he's drawing on the root of the word Torah as flowing like water, and this washes and sanctifies when these words come down. The word Torah also shares the same root with the word moreh, which is the word for teacher. I've made mention of this on numerous occasions, and I probably will again. The words hamoreh hatzadaka are translated as latter rains in 
the prophet Joel chapter 2, but it literally means the teacher of righteousness. Morad means teacher. Tzedakah means righteousness. Teacher of righteousness. It's translated as latter rain because his words flow like water and rain down on the people, sanctifying them, washing them in the pure, clean water of the word. The early or spring rain and the latter or fall rains refer to the coming of the teacher of righteousness. This is the teacher of righteousness was a big deal in the Essene community in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, there is this, the, the leader of that community was called Hamoreh HaTzedakah, the teacher of righteousness. For believers in Yeshua, we understand this as the first and the second coming of Yeshua, the teacher of righteousness whose words flow like water and sanctify. They make us holy. Those words contain life. Verse 13, so Moses got up along with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And it's unclear if Joshua was counted along with the 70 princes, the 70 leaders of Israel. I infer from the next verse that he was not. Verse 14, but to the elders, Moshe said, wait here for us until we return to you. The us refers to him and Yehoshua, Joshua. And behold, Aaron and Hur, Aharon and Hur are with you, and whoever has a legal matter, have them approach them. The mundane matters that would inevitably arise with such a large group of people like those who left, all of uh, those who came to the base of Mount Sinai, both of Israel and that great mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with Israel, there's going to be problems. You got Jews there. There's two Jews, there's three opinions. You multiply that out, there's trouble. This was anticipated and God appointed some people to deal with these matters while Moshe and Yehoshua and the 70 elders are up on the mountain. Then Moshe, in verse 15 and 16, then Moshe went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days and on the seventh day he called to Moshe from the midst of the cloud. And at this point, Joshua had accompanied him a little higher up than the other, elder, other elders of Israel. And now Moses leaves Joshua to go up even higher and get closer and a more intimate presence with God. Verse 17 and 18. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And then Moshe entered the midst of this cloud. Moses walks into what appears to, be, to those who are below to be a raging fire. And as with the bush that burned without being consumed, Moses survives. He is not consumed by this fire. To those 
who are called, the condition within the flames is utterly different than the, to how it appears to those who are outside that presence of God. Very similar to how what happened with the prophets when they entered into the furnace. What appeared outside was different. They were okay. And what appeared to them was like unto the Son of Man. Same thing essentially happened to Moshe. There are no further descriptions of what Moshe saw as there are no words in any language of man to describe the presence of God that Moshe saw in that, in that cloud. There is only a description of what happened and what God said while Moses and God were in this raging flame. And God gives Moshe the plans for the Ohel Moed, the tent of the meeting, God's sukkah his tent that he would live in for the next 40 years right alongside of Israel. It is my desire to be one of those who ascend and receive a closer view of the one who speaks to me on the gentle wind. Every morning I get up relatively early, three o'clock, and I enter the quiet stillness that exists on the shores of eternity. And I simply gaze out into that vastness. It is my hope. I spend much time in, the, in, in God's word because it is my hope that I might see through the black fire of God's words written on that white fi fiery parchment. I might see through those words and catch a glimpse of the ones, the one whose feet rests upon that fire. I'm constrained by a single factor. My sin causes me to see through that glass dimly. Isaiah 59, because of your sin, because of your iniquity, I have hidden my face from you so that I do not hear. I see through this glass dimly to whatever degree sin reigns in my life. That sin obscures the face of God, the very face I seek. We use the word righteous a lot. We have attached a great deal of meaning to that word, but the Peshat, the simple meaning of the word Sadiq brings clarity. Most people exegete the word righteous. The word righteous means right, a right path. And that meaning is certainly implied. However, the Hebrew word sadiq literally means straight. And it comes, it, it comes from the same root as all things that are straight. When it is applied to Derech Hashem, the path of God, the straighter the path from where I am to where God is, the better. It's expeditious. 
It's a straight path, there are no deviations. Those deviations are seen as sin or distractions from the most direct path to God. An overview of my, the course of my life which comes as, as a man ages, he, uh, he tends to look back more than forward because there's a lot more time behind him than there is in front of him. And you tend to look back over the course of your life and that gazing back has revealed many of these deviations. Rather than the flight of an arrow, my, my path appears more like the slithering of a serpent. I still fight against those desires of the flesh that cause me to take my eyes off of God. The old man may be dead, but he still calls muster on me from the grave. But as a, an old friend in Israeli commando was saying once, he was quoting Talmud and he says, well, the greater the obstacles, the more glorious the victory. Hmm. My victory will be most glorious. Derech Hatzadik, the path of righteousness, is a straight path that leads to God. God's Torah, his instructions, which is what the root of the word Torah means. It doesn't really mean law. It literally means instructions. And Paul has a little play on the words here, Torah and Moreh. He says, the law was our schoolmaster, our teacher. Torah is the map or the compass that reveals the path of the righteous. Believers have argued about the status of Torah in the life of the believer now for 2,000 years. If the Lord tarries, it'll be another 2,000 years. Paul is quoted, and out of context, that we are told that we are no longer under the law, the Torah, but should follow the, the law of Mashiach. But it's Mashiach who declares in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, do not come to, I have not, do, sorry, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill or to keep fully the Torah, which he did. He was the only one who did. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. By saying until, he's indicating that there is a time coming when heaven and earth will pass away. This is confirmed in the new covenant. This heaven and this earth will pass in a fervent heat. He's essentially saying, as long as the present heavens and earth exist, Torah is in force. God's instructions are in force. The physical heavens and the physical earth are still here. And those instructions given at Sinai govern our behavior within this physical realm. 
Once we leave the physical realm, the Torah delivered at Sinai is pointless. What is the point in a commandment that says, thou shalt not murder in a place where people can't die? The prohibition against adultery in a place where there is no given, giving and taking in adultery, where you can't steal anything. None of those commandments are applicable in a spiritual realm. They govern this heaven and this earth until they pass away. Paul clarifies the matter in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired, literally breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The scripture that Paul is referring to is the Tanakh, the so-called Old Covenant. There was no New Covenant. He was writing it. That statement is, is, in, is in the process of being written. The New Covenant didn't exist yet. All scripture is good for training in righteousness, the straight path. Sofer Elohim, the scroll of God's word, is designed to be used for course correction. It's a map and a compass. We can view our deviations and determine how to return or repent. In Hebrew, it's the word shuvah, to return to that straight path of righteousness. The Torah, you know, I have a mirror in my house. And it's no longer useful, useful to me because every time I look in the mirror, there's this old guy who gets in the way of me seeing myself. The Torah is a mirror for my soul. It allows me to see through God's eyes what I look like. My delusions evaporate. And I see with God's eye how he sees me. And although the Torah contains rather detailed instructions on how those who walk with God should live, the Torah has no inherent power to compel a person to follow those instructions. Only the promise of blessing for those who do and curses for those who rebel. Paul understands this clearly and declares it in Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, specifically mine, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's Paul's desire that the straightness, the righteousness of Torah that reveals that straight path to God be fulfilled in us. One step in, after another. No rabbit trails, no deviations. The path is described by Yeshua in Matthew chapter 7. Straight is the gate 
and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there are that find it. The psalmist proclaims what? Pitchli Sharet Sedek. Open to me the gates of your righteousness. Show me that straight path. We have it inscribed on our parochet that sits in front of the ark. That's why I chose that verse to have to be embroidered on that. The path of straightness that leads to God, which he outlined for us. In Jacob's dream, the ladder that came forth from heaven and descended and was set on earth is a straight path connecting heaven and earth. Jacob understood this dream and declared this place to be Sharei HaShemayim, the gate of heaven. There's two ways to spell straight, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T and S-T-R-A-I-T. A straight is a straight connection, narrow typically, that connects two bodies of law, of water. Well, both of those words are applicable to what the, the word is speaking about when it talks about the straight and the narrow path. That gate is a straight that connects this world to the next. That ladder was a straight, S-T-R-A-I-T that connected heaven and earth. The interesting part is Yeshua draws upon that understanding in John chapter 151, where he declares that he is the ladder upon which the angels of God ascend and descend. If you remember, uh, he mentioned to Nathaniel that, that uh, he saw him sitting under a, a tree in Nathaniel, I believe. And Yeshua says, you believe because I saw you sitting under a tree? That's nothing. Soon you shall see the heavens fold back and you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He declares clearly he's the latter in Jacob's, Jacob's dream. Walking the straight and narrow path has become proverbial in numerous languages. It refers to an honest and morally accepted way of living. When a criminal is reformed, we say he has he gone straight. He has chosen righteousness or straightness over crookedness. I remember I was listening to, a, oh, this is long time back, maybe 10 years, an interview on the TV and there was a homosexual man on this panel, and he said, I'm gay, you're straight, we're, we're the same, only I like men. And I sort of smiled a little bit at that statement because I understand what straight is in Hebrew. It's tzaddik, righteous. Indeed, I can only hope to be more straight that I can work out the kinks and the serpentine path that I have been walking and that those curves and, and turns would become straight. And when, in one regard, I am the same as that man. 
for I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just like him. We differ only in the intent of our hearts. Being straight, I desire to be righteous. When I deviate from that path and fail to achieve that goal, I am sad and I seek to repent. I don't glorify those deviations and exonerate them. As Paul in Romans 7, 7, I condemn those times that I leave the straight path. What what does Paul say? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Wretched man am I, who is to save me from this body of sin and death? Praise be to God that through Yeshua, dot, dot, dot. He understood. The Torah reveals my need for God's mercy and grace. It was the purpose of Torah. It remains the purpose of Torah to reveal those places that I have deviated from the straight path. Paul was not animus. He was not lawless. He declares that Torah is righteous, that Torah is good. The curse of Torah is that we are neither of those things. And the Torah reveals those things, and it condemns my behavior when my behavior deviates from that straight path. The man, the beast of revelation, is called the man of lawlessness. He is lawless and he will, when he comes into power, compel others to be lawless as well. God's instructions are the ties that bind us to him. The same ties that mankind will seek to break in Psalm 2 when the nations of the world gather to fight against the Lord and his anointed, or in the Hebrew, the Lord and his Mashiach, his anointed one. They want to break those ties. I'm no longer under those things that God said for me to do. And for those who believe, well, we're under the law of Messiah, and only those laws that were reiterated by Yeshua are are we subject to. Well, that's not exactly accurate. Yeshua never tells us that we should not take the Lord's name in vain. Does that mean we're allowed to now? Of course, this is foolishness. He never reiterates that. Men like Paul who understand that they have committed profound sin understand the necessity of God's grace and God's mercy more than most. Yeshua puts it this way, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. I seek to walk the straight and narrow path that leads to God. I often fail. I grew up in the real Holy Land in Brooklyn where I was surrounded by people who sought desperately to walk in the letter of the law, to be the most righteous they possibly could. But if pressed 
Every single one of them would tell you, I fell. No one knows more how far we have strayed, or he has strayed from God's word than those who study God's word. If God does not show me grace, if he ever ceases to show me mercy, I have no hope. And I am one who seeks to walk that path of righteousness. Without his mercy, there is left only to me the sure and certain place of outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Perhaps we would do better. Perhaps the light that God has entrusted to each of us would shine more brightly if instead of trying to figure out how few laws, how few instructions of God can we follow and still make it into heaven, perhaps if we changed our attitude to determine how many of his instructions can I walk in? Maybe the light of his presence in us would begin to shine more brightly. That others would see that light and glorify their Father in heaven for the good works that were done. The path to God is illustrious. It is illuminated by the white fire of God's presence. That light that resides just beyond the words of God that were written down. May the Lord give us eyes to see that in his light we might see light. That as we delve deeply into his word, we too might receive a vision of God's presence that will leave us in awe and without words. Father, in Yeshua's name, I thank you. That this is a journey that is filled with wonder. That every time we catch a small glimpse, a vista of your presence, small, capture a small, an extended view of your face, it opens up to us an entire universe. A new place to wander, a new place to behold your presence. Search us, Lord. And if there is any iniquity, if there is any deviation from that path of righteousness, leach it from us with the pure, clean water of your word. that our final destination would be to behold your face. In Shu's name, Amen.